0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. I hope you did all follow Tom's advice and take a deep breath because tonight we're going to read the entire book of Nahum. Fortunately, it's a relatively short book. It's only three chapters, and the chapters themselves are relatively short. The book of Nahum only has one theme. The theme is that Nineveh is going to fall. And in the book, Nahum takes the time to refer to the fall of Thebes, And we know when that was. That was around 660, 661 B.C., so we know that he's writing after that time. He seems to be writing right around the time of the Reformations that the good king Josiah has brought about in Jerusalem. And since we're at the point in 2 Kings where we're talking about Josiah and his reforms, it's a good time to stop again and look at the prophets that were around during that time. This is the time of Jeremiah. This is the time of Habakkuk. This is the time of Zephaniah. And because the book of Nahum is talking about the fall of Nineveh and that that was actually accomplished in 612 B.C., We've kind of got a period from 661 to 612. Nahum fits somewhere in there. Yeah, Most. my favorite verses? Oh, good. Well, when we get to it, you can jump up and say, that's my favorite. Because it's going to be a little while till we get to it. Well, it's not going to take you long to get to this one. Well, that's I'm good. the third verse, and it says, he has his way in the whirlwind. Yes. It's good that you bring that up, because so much of the book of Nahum is fairly poetic language. All designed to drive you to the same conclusion, which is Nineveh's going to fall. But in order to talk about that fact, <coughs> we really need to get some background again, because this gives us yet another clue into not only the way that the Bible works, but the way that a sovereign God works. If you look all the way back at the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham was given promises from God that he was going to have seed as numerous as the sands of the sea or the stars of the heavens, even though he had no children, and that the offspring were going to come through him and his wife, through Sarah, he asked God, how do I know that these things are going to be true? And God told him the next more than 400 years of his offspring's history and told him that his offspring were going to go into Egypt, into a land where they were not known. They were going to serve there as slaves for 400 years. And then they were going to come out of that place and come back to this very land that God had promised by covenant to Abraham. And that particular land was occupied at the time. But God said something very interesting. He said, the reason I'm sending you into This captivity for 400 years is so that you're going to grow up to be a great nation. So you can come back and occupy this land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, which is really interesting, really fascinating thinking to me because God has said You're going to conquer the Amorites. Your offspring are going to come back and drive out the Jebusites and the Hittites and the large people group, the Amorites, are going to be driven out of this land, but not for another 400 years. I'm letting them build up their iniquity against me. And then you're going to punish them in 400 years. Okay, well, then you start thinking about Jonah. Now talking both about Jonah and talking about God's sovereignty in prayer, we talked about the fact that God told Jonah to go tell Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria and Nineveh is a major city and a major trading city and a a huge industrial city and God sends Jonah there to say, you're going to be destroyed. And so Jonah goes there with the intention of carrying that message. And uh, you know the whole story in the middle. There's the time in the water. There's the time in the fish. And then after all that, he's driven to go to Nineveh and say, God is going to destroy Nineveh. And what does Nineveh do? They repent. And God says, Okay, I'm not going to destroy you right now, which makes Jonah angry. That's the end of the book of Jonah and the part that you don't teach the kids in Sunday school is that Jonah gets upset with God. He went and told everybody, God's going to destroy you. And then God didn't do it. And so I've posed the question a couple of different times, what was God's ultimate intention? Was it his intention to destroy Nineveh? Or was it his intention to drive them to this repentance so that he could preserve them? What was his purpose ultimately? Or did God change his mind? I contend that knowing what we know about God's sovereignty and the fact that he does not change, I contend that it was always God's purpose to keep Nineveh going because Nineveh served a purpose in God's economy. Now, Jonah is about 150 years before Nahum. And Jonah said, God is going to destroy you. Well, it turns out that's true. But it was 150 years away. And they repented, and God kept them going. Now, in that century and a half interim, what did God do with Nineveh? Well, he used the Assyrians as the battle acts, for lack of a better word, that he utilized to punish his people Israel. And then God was upset, as we read in Isaiah, God was upset at the haughtiness with which Assyria went and conquered Israel. So God was then against Assyria. So we're talking about a Gentile nation. We're talking about a nation that does not know Yahweh, that is not following after the law of Moses, And now we start to get some idea of why God did not punish and destroy Nineveh during Jonah's time. God had to keep them alive. I don't think that God just got lucky. I don't think that God just said, oh, my people Israel need to be punished by somebody. Oh, that's lucky. Nineveh's a big conquering nation right now. I'll utilize them. I think that it was always his intention to keep Nineveh in their place, in their power, in order that he could use them at a set time in the mind of God, always knowing what he was going to do in time so that he could use them to punish his people, Israel. And having accomplished that, now he's going to destroy Nineveh. And it's just like God saying, the iniquity of the Amorites is not full yet. I'm going to give them another 400 years, and then you're going to wipe them out. And he did. Go find an Amorite. So does that kind of give you a sense historically of how God is working in Israel's favor? I keep saying over and over again, you can't understand world history until you understand how everything that happens, especially in the Middle East, even to this very day, happens depending on how God's people are affected. And until you understand God's dealings with Israel and his dealings with the Gentile nations on Israel's behalf, you're never going to understand it. You can't understand world history if you don't understand the Bible mm-hmm. because the Bible gives you the motivations for why the kings and the countries of the earth do the things that they do. And the same way that God was absolutely sovereignly in control of what happened among the Amorites and what happened among the Ninevites and how long they continued and at what point in time they were destroyed, that same God is still on his throne today. Mm -hmm. And he's still raising up and taking down nations and he's still in charge of how the world is operating so that it comes out to the benefit of his people. Isn't that exactly what Paul wrote? That all things do work together for good. For who? And he sets their limits, absolutely. So all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And that's really what Nahum is about. Now, like I said earlier, after Gladys's earlier comment, the book of Nahum is largely poetic, but it does have the central theme of the destruction of Nineveh. <coughs> So we're really going to spend the rest of the night just kind of reading it out and getting through all three chapters of Nahum, and then that will be a night. Because I should point out, Nahum was right. Nahum was saying, Mighty Nineveh, Grand Nineveh, Nineveh that has taken the northern tribes into the captivity, Nineveh which seems impregnable, undefeatable, is going to fall. It's going to be crushed. It's going to become grasslands for herds that are going to come there to eat grass. And as much as people didn't believe Nahum, he was absolutely right. All of that did, in fact, take place, like I said, around 612. Like I said, there is one central theme to the whole book, which is God is absolutely sovereign. God is going to punish Assyria, the same thing that Isaiah has already predicted. And Nineveh is going to fall. That's the theme of the whole book. So now I'll read it because I contend that there's nothing more fun (laughs) than listening to Jim read. Absolutely. Starting at chapter 1, verse 1, talking about the awesomeness of our sovereign God, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. a jealous and avenging God, is Yahweh. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Okay, now that sounds like this is going to be a heavy book where God is declared to be a vengeful and a jealous God. I heard a good definition just the other day about God's jealousy that I really thought was helpful so I'll share it with you real quickly here if I keep sharing things we won't make it through the book so I won't keep doing this but but I heard uh, speaking of God saying so frequently that he is a jealous God he's a jealous God but he is not an envious God when we speak of human jealousy which comes from a corrupted point of view We're sinful people. When we are jealous, usually our jealousy is driven by envy. But God is jealous for what is his, what belongs to him, his people. He is jealous to make sure that they are taken care of, that they are protected, and that they end up where he intends for them to end up. But he is never an envious God because everything belongs to him. So he is never green with envy the way we are but his jealousy is a pure and a holy jealousy where he contends in favor of those that are his isn't that a good distinction it's a helpful place a jealous and avenging God is the Lord the Lord is avenging and wrathful the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies but verse 3 The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no (coughs) means leave the guilty unpunished. In the whirlwind and in the storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So God is so high and so majestic that even all the clouds of the sky are merely dust under his feet. He rebukes the sea, and he makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world, and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Remember at the beginning, this was the oracle of Nineveh. So whenever he just says it, he's talking about Nineveh. When he says he will make a complete end of its sight, that means the place where it stands is going to be completely leveled. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness, because people think, well, if I run to the darkness, then God won't see me. He can't find me. That's a concept that comes up often in the Bible, that sinful men do their sinful deeds in the dark, because they don't think anyone will see, and God will pursue them in the dark. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Do you get that phrase? Distress from God is going to rise up against Nineveh once. And it's going to be a complete end of their rebellion against him. And it won't have to come up twice. He's going to do it once. And that's the end of it. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth One who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke and his bar from upon you i will tear off your shackles the lord has issued a command concerning you your name will no longer be perpetuated i will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods i will prepare your grave for you are contemptible should i mention hillary clinton at this point or should i you just, you just did oh okay I should have said that with my inside voice. You can see right there, I had a hard time struggling with it. God said they were a basket full of contemptibles. Is that worse than deplorable? Deplorables. Behold on the mountain the feet of him who brings good news. Now that statement, of course, is carried all the way into the New Testament. How beautiful are the feet of those that carry glad tidings. Behold, on the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Okay, now think about Judah for just a moment because Judah has had several constant incursions by the Assyrians. They've been able to throw them off. We've been reading about that. But the northern ten tribes have gone into captivity in Assyria. Many different nations have fallen to the Assyrians and it's not until the Babylonians rise up that, that Nineveh is finally going to fall and again, God is going to make sure that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to not only conquer but then come to realize that it is God who's in charge of all these things. It's God who is raising up and tearing down kings. But Judah is deathly afraid at this point of these constant incursions from Assyria. The last incursion into Judah, God sent an angel who killed 185,000 of them. And they went back home, and then that king was killed. Another king rose up, and they're coming back toward Judah. And so here's Nahum saying, be happy, announce peace, celebrate your feasts. And that's good news in the midst of these really terrible portends that look like... Judah is going to fall the same way that Israel fell. Mm. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. There's the end of chapter one. I think we're going to make it. (laughs) The one who scatters has come up against you, man, the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Okay. So now he's talking about Jacob and he's talking about Israel. So he's talking about the northern tribes who have been taken into the Assyrian captivity. And I keep saying over and over and over again that all the prophets to Israel all speak with one voice. You should have that tattooed to your memory by now. But here's Nahum in this very short little book saying the same thing. God is going to restore the splendor to Jacob. Now at the time, they're in captivity. They're slaves. And then when they're allowed to go back to their land, their land is not only peopled by foreigners, some Israelites come back and intermarry with those people, but the vast majority of them disappear into the Gentiles of Europe. Some go down into Egypt and Africa, and, and they sort of disappear into history, and that's why we call them the lost tribes but even during Jesus day Jesus seemed to know where they were because he did tell his disciples don't go into the way of the Gentiles don't go into the way of the Samaritans go first to the lost sheep of Israel and tell them about the kingdom preach the gospel of the kingdom to them so at least in Jesus time they seem to be at least locatable in some large quantity but but now we, we don't know we don't know where they've gone and yet just like every other prophet in the Bible, Nahum says the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Now, by the way, for all the folks who keep insisting, and I do get email frequently from people who insist, this can all be understood if you just understand that the church is the new Israel. Israel well, then you have to take that entire verse and somehow apply it to the church, and I want to know when the church was devastated and when the devastators came in and destroyed it. That doesn't exist anywhere. But if you're going to say these verses are about the church, I contend over and over again, it's about Israel because it is Israel that went into the Assyrian captivity. So they are the people who are being promised these things. And it's not good enough to spiritualize those promises and say it now applies to the Gentiles in some very vague way. Hmm. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly through the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. And the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop. Stop. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. And so she is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Now he's going to talk about dens of lions. Now, a moment ago, this description of these mighty warriors, colored red, warriors that are dressed in scarlet, chariot wheels like flashing steel, there are a couple different ways that people comment on that passage. Some say that this is the description of the judgment of God against Nineveh because it concludes in the mighty ones and the nobles of Nineveh stumbling and then being stripped and carried away. Some people say that that is a description of the warriors of Nineveh in the way that they would destroy and ransack other cities. But because it ends with Nineveh being destroyed, I think Nahum's intention here was to say that when God's armies attack Nineveh, that it's going to be devastating. So then he turns to the young lions, and you're going to find out by the time we get to verse Thirteen, that he's really talking about the young men the strong young men who were able to go to war and the men of Nineveh were renowned for being strong young warrior men and he says where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, the lioness and the lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them The lion tore enough of his cubs. He killed enough for his lionesses and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots with smoke and sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off their prey from their land And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. So again, in poetic language, he's saying the young lions of Nineveh used to just conquer wildly. It was like a lion going to take prey back to his den. They would conquer and then take people groups like they did Israel back to the land of Nineveh and enslave them. But the declaration from God is, I'm against you and I'm going to destroy your lions. And that takes us to chapter 3. We're just racing through this book. <laughs> now he's going to refer to Nineveh as the bloody city. Now it starts to get really serious and really direct. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip The noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. Most commentators agree that the beginning of chapter 3 is about the fact that there is going to be warfare in the city of Nineveh. It is going to be a bloody city when they are conquered by Babylon. And this is an accurate description of what's going to happen. Massive bloodshed and death until they're stumbling over all the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one. The mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and sells families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? In other words, all the nations that they've been conquering around about have grown to hate Nineveh. So when Nineveh falls, where are you going to find somebody to grieve over that? The people are going to be happy that finally Nineveh is done with. No one's going to comfort them. Are you better than Noaman? That's the city of Thebes that I spoke of earlier. Thebes was a major metropolitan city there in Egypt, down by the Nile River. And because it's by the Nile River, and then a sliver of land, and then the sea is next to it, that was one of the ways that they defended themselves. And yet, Assyria had conquered them. And so the question is, Are you better than Noaman? They fell so you can fall. Which was situated by the waters of the Nile with waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers. Yet she became an exile She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men. In other words, the the men who were once leading the city, the honorable men, they were now enslaved. They were gambling over them just to have a slave. And if this is what happened to that great city, that great Egyptian city, with all the power and authority and protection that they had, If they could fall, so can you. And since you're the one that took them down, I'm going to take you down. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You, too, will become drunk. You will be hidden. You, too, will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Again, poetic language. But all that means is if you go up to a tree that has ripe figs on it, ripe fruit that's ready to fall anyway, all you got to do is shake the tree and the the fruit falls. And he says, that's what your fortifications are going to be like. The things that you're trusting in, when the warring armies on behalf of Yahweh come, All they're going to do is shake your walls and your fortifications are going to fall. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. We've kind of lost with women's equality. What an insult that was! Because the men went and fought, the men led the city, the men were the government, the men made all the decisions. They wouldn't even allow a woman usually to testify in a court of law. The women were, in fact, treated more or less like second-hand citizens. And here he's saying, all your warriors, all your mighty men, they're just women. And so this is an insult saying that they're not going to be able to defend themselves. Behold, your peoples are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Have you seen a movie? You probably have seen some movie, any movie, where you see fortified cities, and then you see them either bring up the drawbridge or close the gates and then put giant beams across the gate. If you can hold the gate, you can usually keep the enemy outside. But if, if somebody comes along with a battering ram or anything else, once that gate is opened, it's all over. And so God is saying to Nineveh, that your enemies are going to come flooding through your gates. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Those are the bars that they put in place to keep the gate closed. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Their fire will burn consume you the sword will cut you down during the warfare they're going to do all of that when they see the siege coming they're going to draw water they're going to strengthen the fortifications they're going to build up their walls they're going to do everything they can to protect themselves and it's not going to work God says the fire will consume you the sword will cut you down it will consume you as the locust does Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. So that's what you're like up till now. You're like creeping locusts. You descend like a horde of locusts on a city. And you strip it down the same way that locusts come and strip a field. And that's the way that you've always been. And yet, despite the fact that this is your history, like (laughs) like destructive bugs, your guardsmen are like swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? The clapping of hands these days means approval. Yay, Jeff. You know, I mean, that's clapping. But when he was writing, clapping hands was a sign of derision. Clapping over somebody was a sign that you, you know, it was like you've been smacked. You're, you're done. It was a way of deriding somebody. And so here he's saying to the king of Assyria that the nobles aren't going to be there. They're laying down. The people are all scattered on the mountains. There's no one left to regather them. The government has all fallen apart. And there's no relief for your breakdown. The wound is incurable. Now, again, who wounded them? God, God wounded them. Because this is the God who says of himself, I wound, can I heal? I'm the one who does all this. He says to Israel, You've got an incurable wound, but I can heal you. Here he says to Nineveh, You've got an incurable wound. And I'm not going to heal you because it's God that wounds and it's God that heals. I've got extra time. Let me just talk theologically for just a moment. Then we'll get back to the end of Nahum. But there are a great many people in the Pentecostal area and really beyond that who have misunderstood the language of what Jesus did on the cross according to Isaiah because one of the things that Isaiah says about Jesus on the cross is by his wounds we are healed and Isaiah being a prophet to Israel is speaking of Israel when he says by his wounds we are healed that's a prophetic message of the healing of Israel because of Jesus' death but it's also because They've been wounded by God. God has wounded them, taken them out of their land, scattered them, sent them into enslavement, and then into not being a people. All of that God did as a wound to them, and they've been healed of that wound through Christ's sacrifice and God's promises going all the way back to Abraham. So the people who... Claim that promise and say the passage in Isaiah says that when Jesus died, my wounds were healed. And what they mean by that is the cold I have is going to clear up or I've I've got some sickness or I'm I'm going to be able to walk again or I'm going to you know, when anybody says that all they're proving is they've misunderstood the historic context and the way that wounding and healing is spoken of in the Old Testament and by the prophets and in the Bible. It's a national wound of Israel that is nationally healed by Jesus' sacrifice. And by that, by his wound, then we are healed. Does that make sense now? And so here is another example of the way that God uses this word of wound. He's saying to the king of Assyria, your wound is incurable. But he's not saying you actually have a physical wound. He's saying your nation, your great Nineveh has been destroyed and the people have been scattered and the nobles are dead and and there's no way to fix it. It's permanent. So your wound won't be healed. You get that? Mm -hmm. That's the way the language works. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you For on whom has not your evil passed continually? That's the history of Nineveh right there. Mm -hmm. On all the nations around them, all they got was evil at the hands of Nineveh. But that's the very Nineveh, as God is destroying it here, that's the very Nineveh that God kept alive 150 years ago. Couldn't he have wiped them out back then? I mean, if he had wiped them out back then then Israel would not have gone into the Assyrian captivity. But God intended that Israel was going to go into the Assyrian captivity. He intended that the northern tribes were going to be scattered. And so he needed a superpower like Nineveh to accomplish that. And so when he sent Jonah to Nineveh to tell Nineveh that God was going to destroy them, they repented and God kept them alive for another 150 years and then did this to them. He did what he said through Jonah he was going to do. He did destroy Nineveh, but he didn't do it right then immediately. They repented, which was God's intention And God used them to punish Israel. And having accomplished that, he punished Nineveh. And that's a really sovereign God. That's a God who's in charge on multiple levels of whatever happens in human history. And when people freak out about who the next president's going to be or how the next election is going to go or how the next four years are going to be. How about 400 years? God told Abraham what was going to happen for the next 400 years, and it included all kinds of difficulty. Your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and serve them as slaves for 400 years. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to bring them back. And these are the people God loved. These are the descendants of the one he made a covenant with. And they're going to be slaves for 400 years, which means that there were descendants of Abraham, who were born, lived, and died as slaves in Egypt. And that was God's plan. Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. When the iniquity of the Amorites came to the full, which God knew was going to be 400 years, God knowing everything, he then brought the children of Israel via Moses out of the land of Egypt. He built them up, large enough to be a nation, a people group that could go and conquer that land and occupy that land. So I say over and over again, our God is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the more you know about the Bible and how it works together, the more you can understand how God has been in control of human history for the entirety of human history. And there's just no way that he suddenly quit that last week. He's still in control of human history because, because the same way, I'm nearly done, I promise. Because the same way that God kept Nineveh going so that he could use Nineveh to punish Israel and then destroy Nineveh, that's the same God who has already said that there's going to be a little horn, an antichrist, a final world ruler who's going to rise up in the Middle East and he's going to... He's going to, again, have interactions with Israel. And again, human history all revolves around what's going on in Israel. And that one has still got to come on the scene of history, and that one has still got to go into perdition, and that one still has to be conquered by Christ's return. And then God still is going to set up the kingdom. And there's still going to be a thousand years of Jesus reigning from Jerusalem on David's throne. And that all still has to happen, which means at this very moment as I'm speaking, God is still raising up and taking down nations to bring it to that end, because we already know what the end is, and we have lots of examples of him controlling history and time, and he's controlling it right now. Mm -hmm. So whoever the next elected officials are, they're still going to do whatever God wants done. You got it? Yes, sir. Well, then I'm done. You get to go home five minutes early. That's five extra minutes I get on Sunday. So, any questions about that? That's Nahum for one night. Next week, we'll probably look at Zephaniah. I don't know how many weeks that will take, but we'll, we'll go through Zephaniah next. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.